0: Today's episode is sponsored by TeeGo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others?
1: Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to TeeGo and benefited from their personalized approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year.
0: If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums.
1: Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors.
0: Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au.
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2
0: anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is 1 in 10, Part 2, where we'll discuss the topic of statistics over a series of episodes with special guest Dr. Shannon Morrison. In this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA.
1: Shannon, welcome back, and thanks for joining us for another episode. Thanks for having me back. So we've just had a great discussion about data types, data reporting, descriptive statistics and both parametric and non-parametric testing. So now we're going to move on to talk about concepts like sample size, power and hypothesis testing. First of all, what do we mean when we use the term sample size?
2: So I like that you've asked what
1: sounds like a straightforward question
2: and now (laughs) I'm going to talk for like three minutes.
0: (laughs) You have a captive audience. Go for it. Okay.
2: So in a very general sense, imagine we're setting up a study to look for a difference with a particular intervention. So to set it up, the things you want to consider are how big is the effect that you're looking for, Mm -hmm. how much you're willing to accept that by pure chance your study shows an effect when there wasn't really one. So that's the alpha, Mm -hmm. which we can kind of go through again later. Conversely, also how much you're willing to accept that it shows no effect when there really was one. So that's beta. Mm. And how many patients do you need in your study to achieve all of this? Mm. So that's the sample size. Not unlike in the primary where we had all these equations where one thing and th- this thing affects these things, mm. this is what happens here as well. So it actually is just an equation that you can rearrange to get whatever mm. value you want. Cool. These four things are all related to each other. So whenever you have this, we call this degrees of freedom in statistics. If mm. you have four things that are related to each other, it means you can only control three of them and the fourth one will automatically change to fit that. Uh,
0: yeah. Okay.
2: So what happens is when you want to do a sample size calculation, you will either open Excel, or find a friendly statistician (laughs) or go on Google or whatever and they'll say, I want to see if giving people drug A improves Mm. post-op nausea and vomiting by 10% and they will plug in the values for an effect size of 10%, the values for alpha and the power of your study that you want and then they'll tell you you need X number of patients. Mm. And you can turn this around for everything. So say you know you only have 100 patients, then you could say I only have 100 patients Mm. and I want to look for a 10% difference with... Alpha of 0.05, so how what is the power of my study? Yeah. And they can mm. work that out for you as well.
0: Okay, cool. Now what do we mean when we use the term power when looking at a clinical trial and why is it important?
2: So on the exam, right, power equals 1 minus beta and then just move on <laughs> <laughs> or not. So what is beta? Beta is the chance of a type 2 error, so that's finding a no result where there really was one. You kind of want to minimise the chance of type 1, but you also want to minimise the chance of type 2. And it's a bit of a balance. Conventionally, alpha, which is your chance of type 1, is set at 0.05, which is a 5% chance of that. Mm. And beta is usually set at 0.1 or 0.2. So that means that your power, which was 1 minus beta, is 80 to 90%. Mm. So that's what we mean when we say this study is powered at 80% power for whatever. It means that there's a 20% chance of type 2 error. So why not set both alpha and beta at
0: 5%?
2: So because of that relationship we said before where alpha, beta, effect size and sample size are Mm. all part of an equation. Mm. If you lower the risk so you change your alpha and your beta to 0.05, something has to give in that equation. And in this case, it would be your sample size. It will blow up to be a massive study.
0: Oh, gosh. Okay. So that's... Like, do you ever look at sort of sample sizes in clinical trials in journals and think, oh, wow, okay. Have they yeah. fixed their alpha and beta t- and this is the corresponding? Sometimes is that, a very, what, that what, might be a very simplistic way of looking at what
2: it. What normally happens with the sample size, we're going to go a bit off track here, um, <laughs> is that you work it out for 90% power, but then we also account for attrition and fall mm. in and drop out rates. Mm. So when someone does a sample size pre a study, which is what you should do always, mm they often give you an overestimated sample size Mm. and then you can then readjust it later. So often at the end, people would have been aiming for 90% with, say, 10% dropout Mm. or whatever, and they may only get to
1: 83%, but that's still kind of
0: It's still okay, yeah. Yeah. All right, cool.
1: So can you explain the relationship between sample size and power? So if you fix the effect size
2: and alpha, which I guess in this case we're only looking for 10% effect Mm. size, then an increase in sample size increases the power of the study.
1: Okay, and is there anything else that affects the power of a study? So the
2: effect size. So it's really easy to find a big effect. So if you Mm. think it's going to be like 2,000% better, you probably only need like one sample (laughs) person. But if you're looking for only 10%, you're going to need a few people to show that.
1: Yeah, okay. Mm. That makes sense enough. And is it worse for a trial to have a type 1 error or a type 2 error?
2: Oh, this is tricky. You would think it would be worse for type 1, and that's why we say type 1 at 0.05 and mm. the other one at point one point two. But actually, it's more an ethical question than it is a mathematical mm. question. Mm. Um, a type 1 error showing an effect where there isn't one eventually would lead to patients getting treatments that don't work, mm. which yeah. is not great. But then, if you think about the opposite, a type 2 error showing no effect where there really was one means that patients miss out on a treatment that Mm. was beneficial. So it really depends on what your study is looking for and you're looking for what the outcomes are without the intervention. So for things like cancer trials where the outcome is terrible without Mm. treatment, then they may be less willing to accept type 1 error, more willing to accept Mm. type 2. So it's
0: actually a more complicated question than just maths. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. So, perhaps this is a good time to talk about the different types of studies. So, we've mentioned them a couple of times now. First, let's discuss the levels of evidence though, and how this relates to the different types of studies we use. So, what's meant by the term levels of evidence?
2: So the NHMRC Evidence Hierarchy for Interventional Studies, as if you're going to be able to fit that in eight minutes in an <laughs> SAQ, but okay, <laughs> levels of evidence. They, they talk about the relative strengths of different study designs compared to each other, and mm. they're used to justify evidence-based practice. So, you know, you'll kind of see guidelines come out, and then they'll have like a little thing on the mm. side and say A, and A means that it usually comes from high-level evidence. Excellent. High-level evidence is where this ranking comes in. Okay. So there's a few different systems, but generally it's ranked from one to five so one is the best and five is the worst Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. one is a systematic review of level two studies so obviously it's better than just level two because it's heaps of them Mm. Um, level two is rcts level three are pseudo randomized rcts Mm. so that's a weird term but it encompasses things like if you've got different hospitals doing different treatments so they're not (gasps) really Mm -hmm. random but they're still controlled okay This also includes case control studies, cohort studies, that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Case series are level four, so they're not so great. And level five is expert opinion, Mm -hmm. editorial, Mm -hmm.
1: tea room chat. Mm. So what is the difference between a systematic review and a meta-analysis?
2: It's actually the process. So a systematic review is where someone has a question, so they collect and they summarise all the evidence that fits the criteria for their question, which means they have systematically reviewed all of the studies that aim to answer that. Mm -hmm. A meta-analysis is actually just the stats part. Um, It's where they kind of take all the data from those studies, pool it all together into one big data set, and then analyse that. Mm. So a meta-analysis refers to the statistical methods. Not all systematic reviews contain a meta-analysis, but meta-analyses are most often used in systematic reviews Mm. and the most recognizable part is the forest plot which I think we're going to talk about later but it's where you're plotting all of the studies reports of one specific statistic in a single axis this is a nerdier trivia point sorry Mm
0: -hmm. that's okay bring it you're amongst
2: friends okay so the Cochrane collaboration logo which kind of looks like a c it's actually a forest plot Stop it! Yeah, yeah, and it's from the Cochrane review article for steroids for premature babies, and it's the one of the first systematic reviews that were ever published. Yeah. So that's why they. Oh wow! It. Yeah, that's so wow. super cool. If
1: you look I at like it, a bit of nerd trivia. Yeah, yeah. so it's really
0: satisfying because it's a very significant result. So mm. it's quite nice. Hey, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Alrighty, let's talk about the different interventional studies. So first, can you explain what a randomized control trial actually is and why it's considered one of the strongest study types?
2: Oh, this is such a good question for the exam because it's really easy. Awesome. Uh, An RCT is exactly what it says it is. So there is a trial group who gets the intervention and then there's a control group who don't get the intervention and allocation to each of those groups is randomised. So that's it. Easy. <laughs> um, it sounds really simple. Um, it provides really high level of evidence, and this is for a couple of reasons. So, because it's prospective, prospect is always better than retrospective. Mm. Having a control group is always better than not having a control group, mm. and a well designed. So that's the really big underlying here, randomization process. It should balance the groups. So when we say that, it means that. Aside from receiving the intervention, the groups should be statistically
1: indistinguishable from each other. Mm. Yeah, okay. Can you walk us through the different randomised control trial subtypes? Sure. So the one that everyone knows is parallel groups.
2: Mm. So that, that can be more than two groups, but we'll just talk about two because it's easier. And that's where you have one intervention and one control. Mm. At the start, people are allocated at random to one of those groups All of the patients in each group either get the intervention or don't and they run in parallel. So they all start at time point A and go through to time point B and that's it and they run at the same time. So two people in the study, one could be having placebo and one could be having treatment in the same clinic at the same time. This is where it's different to a crossover study. So a crossover study is where people get enrolled in the study and allocated into group A and group B, but group A might get treatment first and then a washout period, and then no treatment. And group B will have no treatment, and then a washout period, and then treatment. So they've crossed over halfway through. And the whole point of those studies is that each individual patient can be their own control.
0: Mm. Okay, cool.
2: Yeah. A cluster, so that's kind of where we were talking about pseudo-randomising earlier. So pre-existing whole groups of patients are allocated together to get the intervention or not. So all patients at hospital A will get the same thing and all patients at hospital B will get the same thing. Mm. This is a bit of a problem with confounding. like Everyone can tell immediately that that's not necessarily the same thing, but the upside is that they're generally cheaper and more feasible, Mm. so it's kind Mm. of worth having a crack. Mm. And then the last one are factorial studies. These are kind of complicated, so I'm hoping I can explain this in a way that makes sense. (laughs) Um, They're basically like say you wanted to do two different people wanted to do an RCT on the same population of patients. Instead of being like, well, they're in study A, so they can't be in study B, you can actually do a factorial study design, which lets you do two studies at once. Oh, cool. And the other thing about them is that it lets you look for whether or not there is any interactions between Mm. your interventions so for example say you were in icu and you were looking at ted's versus scuds and you were looking at prone versus lateral position for dbt formation so you're looking at the same outcome different interventions instead of going one study looks at ted's v scuds one study looks at prone v lateral you're actually going to have four groups so ted's prone ted's lateral scuds prone scuds lateral Ah. seems like a lot of work but now at the end of it you'll be able to look at Mm. ted's v scuds prone versus lateral mm. ted's in prone versus scud's in prone yeah. so you can look at all those like yeah. little interactions yeah. as well so awesome. there's a lot more work oh, yes. but they do have a lot of benefit and the reason why we do them is because the total sample size for combining like that is actually less than doing them both
0: together oh, oh really yeah. yeah oh that's really interesting yeah fascinating now let's talk about the different types of observational studies so first and foremost what is a cohort study
2: So a cohort study is where you take a big group of people, so that's your cohort, and you just watch them over time looking for an outcome. You can either do that prospectively, so you enrol everybody in prep this Mm -hmm. year and you watch to see if they develop ADHD. Okay. (laughs) Or it can be retrospective, so you can say let's look at everyone who's in grade six and go back and see if they had like Mm -hmm. NAPLAN prep or something. Okay. So you're looking at time point and then looking back in time,
1: but it's still the same cohort.
0: Okay, cool. Okay.
1: Sounds good. Um, And lastly, could you please explain what a case control study is? So case control studies, they're not done very often, but they're great for studies
2: where the outcome is rare. It involves taking a group of people who already have the outcome of interest. So they're the cases. So things like lung cancer is very, like mesothelioma is rare. Mm, mm. It's not something that you see every day. Mm. Um, So you're going to take that group of people and find a bunch of matched controls. So they're people Mm. who have similar demographics, like age, gender, weight, whatever, but they don't have mesothelioma. Since the outcome has already happened, they already have mesothelioma. You're Mm. now historically looking back to see what they were exposed Mm. to that led to that, that the control group didn't have. And that's actually how they linked asbestos with Hmm. mesothelioma. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 So it's a very, very rare thing to happen, but Mm. then the chances or odds, which we'll talk about later, the odds of having been exposed to asbestos if you have mesothelioma were very, very high. So that's why you would do it.
0: That's so cool. I'm understanding these things. Yeah. Some would argue for the first time in my life. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> Craziness. All righty, and just like that, again, we find ourselves at the end of an episode with plenty still to discuss. So Shannon, would you join us in a fortnight for another couple of episodes, a bit more of a chit-chat about statistics? Sure. Excellent. This was a really informative discussion on today's episode of Deep Breaths. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, or you just want to say hi, you can email us on deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We love hearing from our listeners and are grateful
1: for all the suggestions to date. And consultants and fellows, be sure to claim CPD for listening to today's episode. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.